Well, hello, everyone. It's so good to be with you, uh, to be connected over this um, medium of technology as we move into uh, the third week of a series that we've been in now called The New Shape of Things. My name is Abby Odio. I am the pastor of teaching uh, and formation here at Green Lake. It is so good to be with you today. Let's pray together as we look at God's word. Loving Father, we uh, trust that even amidst times when it feels like there is little newness, that you are indeed the author of new, that you are the author of life, that you are bringing about good and kingdom-oriented change, even in these times and days that we live in. God, I pray that as we read your words together this morning, that you would Um, challenge us, that you would meet us, that you would shape us, that ultimately um, we would turn to you, that we would love you um, more fully, more wholeheartedly because of the words we read this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll begin uh, today with a little story uh, from my week. We had a situation in our house that needed some attention. Uh, needed, there was a repair that needed to be, be made. And in order to do, do this, we needed plywood. So we put in this pickup order at Home Depot. And when I show up, uh, you know, you pull your car in, you call the number, they bring the order out to you. And um, if you're anything like me in this world of social distancing, any chance you have to relate with someone in real time outside of your immediate family, it's like pure gold, right? So this guy comes out, he's wheeling this cart, uh, he's got my plywood, and I'm like, you are my new best friend. And he starts loading the stuff on my roof, um, and we're talking a little bit, and um, you know, I said, I thanks so much for doing this. We had this thing happen at our house, and I'm so grateful that you're here, that you're working. Uh, so that we can, we can fix it. I said, how's it been for you? And uh, he started talking, you know, he said, it's been kind of hard. We've actually been really busy. I started working about three weeks before the virus really hit. Um, It's the busiest, you know, I've ever been. I've been working overtime. And then he said something that caught me off guard. He said, you know, it hasn't been all that bad. In my whole life, I've never seen myself as essential until now. This was a reference, of course, uh, to his delegation as an essential worker during this time. But as he made the comment, it became clear to me that this guy, who's probably 20 or so years old, was totally serious. Like in his entire life, up until this moment, he had really not seen his story as meaningful, as worthy, as important, as essential. See, we're in this series, The New Shape of Things, and we're studying the book of Acts, which at its core is the story of God's hope being embodied and then spread through God's Holy Spirit, working in and through this little group of people called the church. And what we see in the verses that Eric read for us today is a person named Peter who really kind of assumes leadership of this little faith community. Judas, who was one of the 12 disciples, Uh, betrayed Jesus and now must be replaced. And in this time of need and confusion, Peter steps up. Peter knows what my friend from Home Depot knows. And that's this, the part that Peter is called to play in the story, it's essential. 
And that's not true just for Peter. In the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, we read Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth. And he says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God called them. This is the rule I lay down for all churches. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are in this moment, when it comes to this kingdom, this way, this order, this new thing that God is doing in the world, this peace and beauty and joy and equality and wholeness that God is bringing about through his kingdom, you are essential. And while this has always been God's plan for creation, we see this story take root in a new way in Acts 1. It's interesting, in our text for today, Luke, who is um, the author of the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, he cites that there are 120 believers gathered in this moment in Jerusalem in which he's speaking. Now, that number holds significance because in the Jewish religion, it was required that there be 120 men um, in order for a new synagogue to form. Like, that was the, the minimum number. But what we see here is a group of 120 with one striking difference. There are now women present. In other words, as this vision of God takes root, one of the defining characteristics is this, everyone is essential. Regardless of gender or age or ethnic heritage or intellectual ability, we all have this role to play. And so with the time we have today, we're going to take a closer look both at this text from Acts 1 and also the story of Peter and consider how is it that we are to live into our essential role in God's kingdom in this particular and unique and for most of us very challenging moment in history. It's not something, you know, we do when COVID passes. It's something we do right now. It's a new thing God is calling us to in this very moment. And so as we do that, I'm going to highlight just two aspects of Peter's journey. First is this, Peter had learned where to turn. Peter steps into this essential role because he had learned where to turn. And then second, Peter has learned this new way of relating. He's learned this new way of relating. So let's start um, with this first learning. It's important to name that when most of us think of essential role or we hear that, uh, that word calling, we consider it in terms of function, right? We think about the job that I hold, the major I'll choose, the way I'll spend the hours of my day, generally from nine to five. If we look at Peter in Acts chapter one, it would seem he has figured out his essential role as a leader and a mouthpiece of this movement. But if we zoom out a bit, we find that there was a more essential, more primary calling that Peter had to embrace before he stepped into this role. It's interesting, if you look back over Peter's story leading up to this moment um, that we read in our text today, you'll notice Peter's resume is somewhat disappointing. It's not all that impressive. Peter's most infamously remembered as the passionate follower of Jesus who ends up denying any association with him, not just once, but three times after Jesus is arrested. But the interesting bit of the story is this, before he was arrested and crucified, Jesus actually said to Peter, this thing is going to happen to you. In Luke 22, we read where Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Simon's also a name for Peter, listen, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail and you, when you have turned back, strengthen 
your brothers. In other words, Jesus indicates here that there is something Peter will actually learn in this moment of failure that will give him the ability to strengthen others. But Peter is adamantly against this. He says, no, Jesus, I won't fail you. I'm strong. I'm loyal. I'm competent. Peter has known and followed Jesus for some time now, and he thinks he gets it. He thinks he understands his calling is to be the strong man who will stand at Jesus' side as Jesus defeats the imperial powers of Rome. He thinks that's his primary calling. And in a matter of just two sentences, Jesus deflates and reframes that. He says, your primary calling, Peter, it's not that at all. You want to lead? Try this first. Lean into your weakness. And then Jesus tells him in Luke 22, you'll do this thing that will reorient your entire life and calling. Just when you think you've screwed up beyond redemption, you'll turn back. He actually says that in the text. He says, when you turn back, you'll look to me. You'll find that this mission you're on is accomplished first through earnest, uh, is accomplished not through earnest, willful striving, but through turning. And who it is that you find, Peter, when you turn. When I was 22 years old, I moved down to Los Angeles. I tell people that um, Seattle is God's country and Los Angeles is the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lots of concrete, lots of traffic, lots of people. And for the first six or so months I was there, I experienced this sort of terrible, pervasive sense of loneliness. My first friend, no joke, was a 91-year-old nun named Sister Margaret. For one of my classes, I had to find a person who would be my spiritual director, which is really just a fancy way of saying someone who kind of walks alongside you and helps you listen for God's voice. And so during one of our meetings, uh, mine and Sister Margaret's, was kind of in the midst of this particularly hard season for me. And I was talking about this notion of calling and I was deeply fixated on figuring out exactly what it was God wanted me to do so that I could go and do it and get out of LA, right? A city that I would actually come to love. But as I'm expressing all this to Sister Margaret, she paused for a bit and then she said to me in this very soft and gracious and nun-like way, she said, Abby, have you ever considered that this might be a time where God is doing a work on your heart before he's doing a work with your hands. Did you ever consider that this might be a season where God's doing something in you before he's doing something through you? It was one of those moments where the second she spoke, I knew, I knew she was right. I knew it was true. See, in that season, I learned something I've had to learn many times since. Your primary calling is not to a vocation. It's not to a cause. It's not to a country. It's to a person. A person who meets you when you fail, when you deny him. A person who says, you are loved still. You are chosen still. You are not the sum of the worst thing you've said or done. You are not in this life alone. See, the most formative moment in Peter's life and calling is not as it would seem in Acts 1 when he stands up amid really the first church and speaks these words. It's not that. It was the moment perhaps nobody had ever seen. 
The moment where after denying Jesus, he turns to him again. Now, keeping Peter in mind, uh, keeping Peter in mind, I want to just consider another part of the text where we see this language of turning. Um, in Acts one twenty-five, the disciples pray about who will be the one to replace Judas, and as they pray, they say this: they they say we we pray for the one who will replace Judas, who turned aside to go to his own place. That's a direct quote. And the place they're talking about is presumably this field that Judas bought with the money he'd received for tipping off religious authorities who then go and arrest Jesus. In other words, in his weakness, in his trial, Judas turns aside to his own place. He turns aside to his means, to his own plan for self-redemption, which ironically ends not in Judas's fulfillment, but in his tragic demise. And so as we consider these stories of Judas and Peter in parallel with one another, we begin to see that the question essential to our calling is not how will we avoid failure or how will we go through life without ever experiencing hardship? That's not it at all. Both Judas and Peter walked through very difficult things. In a sense, both of them failed. The question is not how will we avoid such things? The question is where will we turn? The question is today, where are we turning? We find ourselves in this wild historical moment and it's, it's hard, it's, it's tragic, it's unsettling. It's hitting us all in different ways. Some, for some of us, it's profound grief as we watch people we love navigate sickness, anger over missed milestones like graduation, worry over finances, pain once again, as once again, communities on the margins are more severely impacted, loneliness and isolation. I have a two-year-old son. He came up to me the other day. He said, mommy, I need a friend. I looked at him and I said, son, I need you to find a friend. But in the midst of this, whether we're two or 92, we're all looking for a place to turn. If you've been watching TV, TV at all, you'll notice um, marketers have really picked up on this reality that we're looking for a place to turn. Nearly every ad has gone from, you know, buy Doritos or whatever to these are hard and uncertain times, buy Doritos. And it's easy to sort of laugh at how ridiculous that is. And yet, after the weariness of these long days with you know, navigating two jobs and two kids under one roof, or after another night of disheartening news, or after countless hours spent worrying about a dear friend of ours who's battling COVID, Here's me, give me the Doritos. And if it's not Doritos, there's a whole host of alternatives, a whole um, other sphere of things that we can turn to. Lashing out in anger on social media, placing blame on a certain political party because at least it gives us a sense of this desperately longed for and needed control. Tuning it all out for some of us, just diving into work. For others of us, it might be numbing our emotions with online shopping or alcohol consumption or entertainment. See, for most of us, these moments where we choose to turn aside, they might not be as dramatic as Judas. They might be politer, but they're there. 
And in the midst of all of that, this past week especially, as I've been looking at the book of Acts, I've been so convicted and encouraged. I've heard that still small voice of Sister Margaret. Maybe in this season, there's a really important work that God wants to do in your heart. It's not easy. It's not glamorous. Turn to me. Some of my favorite words in all of scripture really directly pertain to Peter's story. Um, They're found in Mark 16, verse 7. The scene that takes place is just after Jesus' body has been crucified and two women show up uh, at the tomb to anoint that body. But of course, they find that Jesus is not there. And instead, they encounter a messenger from God who instructs the woman, go tell the disciples. And then the messenger says this, especially Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. Now, in a way, that's kind of redundant because Peter is one of the disciples. Of course, Peter's included in that. Many translations merely emphasize Peter's inclusion, but my favorite is the CEB translations, which says it this way, especially Peter. Make sure he gets the message. It's like before Peter even made the choice to turn, when he is probably at his ultimate low point, Jesus doesn't ignore him. Far from it, Jesus says, I'm already there. I'm already in Galilee. I've beat you to it, Peter. I'll meet you there. In other words, to you who are weak, to you who feel especially tired today, to those of you who feel like your faith has been made small by a big virus, to those of you who have spent the better part of the last week doing more turning aside than turning to God, hear this, especially, especially you. I'll meet you there. The thing about this God, the thing about this God is that whenever we go to turn, he's already beat us to it. You are essential to my kingdom, God says to Peter and effectively to me and to you, not because of what you will do, but because of who you are. Because Peter, I love you even now, especially now. So that brings us to the second learning we glean from Acts 1, which is this. We learn how to relate. We learn really this new way of relating. In this essential role we're called to fulfill, there's an invitation to turn to God. And in so turning, we receive an identity restored by God's love. But we also find that we're oriented towards the world in a new way. We relate to others in a new way. In Acts chapter 1, we see that the fate of Judas is described in somewhat gruesome detail, right? And it's kind of odd that all that would be included. Verse 18 says that Judas fell in a field he'd purchased and he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. Now we won't uh, dwell on the gruesome nature of this event, but I do want to focus our attention on the word that's used here for bowels because it actually is important. It actually means something. The Greek word is splankna, And what's interesting is if you look elsewhere in the New Testament, that word that's used here as a noun to actually talk about Peter's intestines, or to talk about Judas's intestines, um, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament in verb form. And it means this, to be moved in the inward parts, to feel deep compassion. 
We see this particular verb used twice in the book of Luke. Once in Luke 10, 33, when Jesus tells that story of the good Samaritan, he says, the Samaritan traveling down the road was moved to compassion when he sees the man who's hurt on the other side of the road. Again, in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the text tells us that the father saw the wayward son returning home and the father was moved to compassion with him, for him. It's a word that implies empathy, feeling on behalf of another, a feeling that comes from the very deepest, truest parts of ourselves. Like the Good Samaritan, when we feel it, we're often moved to action. We're often moved to cross the road. Now, it's interesting, scholars note that this word as a verb um, seems to have been invented by the writers of the New Testament. It doesn't appear in classical Greek. It doesn't appear in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's almost like they're trying to communicate a new level, a new depth of connecting with a person. um, And the word for it had yet to be invented. Now, what's fascinating about Acts 1 is that Judas, having chosen to turn his own way, tragically becomes so focused on self-preservation that he loses, quite literally, the part of himself which is able to relate and to see and to love others well. It falls in a field, Luke says. He's unable to do precisely the thing Jesus invited him to do when he said, follow me. Precisely the thing Jesus himself did when he went to the cross. Many of you are um, familiar of the, the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian. He opposed Nazi Germany and eventually was arrested and executed by the Nazi regime. But during his time in prison, he wrote some really profound gospel reflections. And in one such reflection, he says this, he says, we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or omit to do and more in light of what they suffer. We must learn to regard regard people less in light of what they do or omit to do and more in light of what they suffer. Now I have to tell you, I read this and I thought, praise God, this is how Jesus chose to regard me, chose to relate to me. Not in light of what I did or didn't do, but chose to meet me on a cross at my point of greatest weakness. This is the comfort of Hebrews 4.15, which says, we do not have this high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. And when we learn to turn back to the reality of God's just confounding love, when we learn to turn back to that reality, to live in that reality, we learn to relate to others on a real compassionate gut level. I find there is a love lived through me that is otherworldly precisely because it absolutely is. It's not of me. This means I can show up for, uh, you know, with food for an unhoused neighbor living on Aurora, not in a patronizing way, but in a way that sees and knows man, we are all broken. I can connect again and again with my two-year-old who needs a friend, even though it feels like I'm spending 27 hours a day with him right now. I can connect with my spouse or my roommate. I, I can view that comment on Facebook of a Facebook friend, not dismissively as naive words of someone I'm somehow above, but I can instead ask like Bonhoeffer did, what do they suffer? Like, where is that coming from? 
See, it's because of where Peter had been when he went through his own personal darkness and because of the unconditional love he received from God in that vulnerable place, he now has this new way of relating. He no longer cares about being better than the disciples, which is something he had cared about. His ego has suddenly become secondary to this much grander, much more essential vision of God's kingdom. It's a vision Judas tragically never catches because he never learns to turn to the source. And so he cannot relate in this new way. He never learned his essential call in the kingdom to turn and then to go into love. This week I had that an experience that brought this question of calling to the very forefront of my thinking. I had a friend who uh, posted on s- something on social media that I, I didn't agree with, um, which of course isn't uncommon for us to see, but this post actually made me angry. And I don't get angry very often. The content uh, had to do with COVID-19 and sort of the political reality surrounding such. And so in my anger, I outlined a response, which I thankfully uh, had enough sense to read to my husband, Sam, before making public. And after reading it in his sort of loving, wise way, Sam looked at me and said, you know, why don't you just give her a call? Like it, it sounds like this post is coming from a place of real pain for her. And I looked at him and I said, as I like to do, hey, which one of us is the pastor here? Um, but as is generally the case, he was right. And here's the thing. I didn't want to call her on the phone. See, in calling her on the phone, I actually had to have a conversation. It required humility. It required, I see her and listen to her as a person, not a cause. Calling her required, I open myself up to her and see her humanity with that core part of me. Calling requires courage to admit that I may not have been entirely right. Calling requires I turn and lean into the love of God that's there even when, especially when I'm wrong. So I called, partially because I knew I was giving this sermon and I had to have some integrity. And it was a little uncomfortable, but mostly it felt for both of us like this little seed of God's kingdom taking root, right? In a culture of judgment and blame and echo chambers and disconnect and tribal thinking, there was sort of this shared moment of humanity, though we disagreed, this shared place of understanding, this shared pain. There were learnings for both of us in that moment. There was hope. Friends, as we look at the book of Acts, there's this pattern that we see where Jesus's followers, they don't talk about the cross as something that simply determines where we spend eternity. They go out and they live it. Peter is able to step into this role, not because he's qualified, but because he's met Jesus in the depths and so empowered by the Holy Spirit, he goes and he meets others in suffering. He sees them in these places of pain. He says, oh friend, I've been here before. I know where to turn, come with me. In just a moment, we're gonna have a chance to receive communion, apart of course, but together. And if you have elements nearby, now would be the time to grab them. I'd encourage you today in the midst of whatever fears or sufferings or longings you face, Let this be your turning moment. I mentioned I have a two-year-old son at home and he's a really cautious kid. Um, 
But lately, to kind of maintain sanity in our household, we've been going for walks every day or hikes. Um, Usually it's around um, 11 o'clock in the morning when all the wheels are falling off. And um, lately he's been doing this thing where he'll run ahead and then he'll turn back and he'll say to me, mom, are you coming? Are you coming? And I'll look at him and I'll say, yeah, buddy, I'm coming. I'm coming. And then he'll sprint ahead again and, and we'll repeat this over and over. But each time I say to him, you know, I'm here. Each time he turns and he sees me and I say, I'm here. It gives him this renewed sense of courage and determination And then I was thinking about this moment, about this table that we come to together today. In a way, this is what we do. We pause, we we consider, we recognize that we can't keep going without Jesus in the thing that is most essential, which is loving other people well and holy, loving other people in their pain. We recognize in this moment as we turn that we've tried to do that and it hasn't gone so well. We recognize that we need again to hear from Jesus. I love you. I've done this thing for you. So we turn to this table and as we do that, we, we hear those words that he spoke on that night when he was with his disciples. They gathered around and he said, this is my body broken for you. And in a similar way, he poured the wine and he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant shed for you. And then he said, as often as you come together and you do this thing, you eat this bread and you drink this cup, remember me, remember what I have done for you, especially for you. Be filled up, be filled up and not just for yourself, You turn and you remembered and you are filled up on behalf of the world out there, on behalf of the world that needs your essential calling to love, to love holy, to love well. In just a moment, um, as our worship team leads us, um, we'll receive communion together. And if you have the elements, I'd encourage you um, to take, the bread and to eat it. Maybe it's not bread, maybe it's hamburger buns. That's okay. (laughs) And then to drink the cup. um, If you have juice, that's great. Whatever you have, don't miss this opportunity to turn to Jesus, to be with Jesus. If you have family, you might consider um, serving one another. If you're alone in this moment, I hope you feel the presence of your church family with you. Turn to God, friends. Turn to this table and be filled. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who calls us not because of what we bring, but because of what you bring. That you're a God who calls us not because of our competency or our abilities, simply because you love us. God, I pray in this moment as we consider our essential calling, we would just receive from you now the body that you give.
the blood that you give. Lord, may that find us in the deepest recesses of our hearts where we need to be reminded that we are indeed first and foremost your beloved. And God, I pray that like Peter, you would give us a new vision, that you would restore us, that we would head into this week and this day and this, even this next moment, not as people overcome, but people who have a clear way forward, a clear knowledge of what it is you have called us to do, to be with, to see, to love others. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.